if you can turn in your word, your Bible, to 1 Peter chapter 2, or if you don't have your Bible, uh, it is printed in your bulletin, 1 Peter chapter 2. We're continuing our study in this, uh, this great book, and we're going to be reading verses 4 through 10, verses 4 through 10. Now hear the word of the Lord to us this morning. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Please join me in prayer. Almighty God, gracious in all your actions and merciful and just, you have given us your word that declares the glories of your mercy and grace, the realities of our situation and the the, the blessedness of Jesus Christ, your son. This text that has been preached millions of times in the last 2,000 years on this planet has declared a reality that is unchanging that is as true then as it is now. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Let us not stumble in the dark, but let us believe and receive and entrust ourselves to you. Bless this time, Lord, that you may be glorified. In Christ's name we pray, amen. A a quick overview of 1 Peter. This is a just... I, I, since I'm preaching through the book, I just keep going over and over and over it. Just try to get a, a picture. And, and, and you might be familiar with this now that we've, we've six or seven sermons in here. But here's, here's the introduction that Peter is talking to a bunch of Christians that are in faraway places. He's never seen them. They're going through very difficult times. And he says this. He, he says, God loves you. You are loved by God. God sent me a message for you. I have a message from Jesus for you, and it is a message of grace and peace. And now here's the message, and it really is five parts in First Peter. Part number one says, Peter says, God has shown you mercy. He has loved you, and he's given you this amazing, blessed future, and he's going to keep you between now and then. And he's been working on this since all the way to the days of David and Abraham, this is what the angels have looked into this, what God is doing right now to you. Then he goes on to say, therefore set your mind on the future, on the return of Christ. Don't get tied up in the things of this world. And then he moves into the third section and he says, now I will show you how to live in this moment. 
I'll show you how to live in this day as children of God. No longer following the passions of your old ways or like those who don't know God, but now you're following the loving, sacrificial Christ Jesus, your Savior. Then he moves on to point number four, and this is the large section of this book, and he basically says, along the way you're going to suffer. It's going to be hard. But it's not all lost, he says. He said, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, it's actually really good. So while you're going throughout this life and suffering, entrust yourself to God. And I just picture that idea of entrust. He's just like that trust fall. Just like spiritually, emotionally, just know that you are in the hands of God no matter what you're walking through. And then the last point, he basically just talks to the elders and the pastors. He says, elders, you better lead well. God is going to judge you on your leadership. Do good. Do good. So those are really First Peter in a nutshell. This sermon and this text falls in the section uh, where he's basically saying, this is how you now live as children of God. This is how you are to live, and uh, this is how you are to understand the situation and the context of what you live, how you are to understand the world around you. And I think that's important to know, how to understand the world around us, how to understand what God is doing. I, I might be going through a midlife crisis, but then I kind of doubt it. I'm, I'm at the age, maybe it, it, it's at the start, but I've had this crisis at different times in my life. And many of you, many of you have had high school crises. Young professional crises, empty nester crises, end of life crisis. So I, I don't think it's that just particular. I think there's different times in our life where we're just hit with the reality or the question, rather, what in the world is going on? I mean, what is God doing? It's not that we, we as Christians, we throw off God, and maybe some of you have. Maybe if you, some of you have walked away because it's so uncertain. The answer seems so far away that you're, you're like, well, if he's not going to answer me, I'm going to figure it out on myself. We work. Think about all our lives. I know, I know, remember in high school, you just thought there was such a big difference between you and maybe the popular kids or you and the not so popular kids or you and the athletes or you and the rich kids. We're, we're all pretty much the same. We eat, we drink, we watch TV. We go to sleep, we work, we do chores, we get in the car, we go on vacations, we leave vacations, we have birthdays. There's really not, it just keeps going. It's this perpetual kind of going. I, some of you might know Dave Matthews, he wrote a song in the late 1990s that says the ants go marching on. Just talking about all of us. I was up in Seattle this past week and they're doing the same thing. And over in Malaysia, they're doing the same thing. Over in China, they're doing the same thing. Just living and breathing and dying. And so we have these moments like, what is the big picture? What are you doing, God? We know God is real in those moments. We do believe. We don't see him. We do have moments in our life of this pure joy and this assurance of God and of the gospel. And the spirit inside of us, if you are Christ, the spirit inside of you says, I know there's something wrong about these other worldviews, these other religions. So I'm not saying that we've thrown off everything, but we go to church, we fight sin, yes, we believe. But what is going on? Do you ever ask that question? Maybe if you don't ask it, do you ever feel it? 
Or maybe have you asked it so much that you've just given up on really knowing and you just, you, you kind of know what's the next thing to do, but you just don't get the big picture. But I'm, I'm a big picture guy. And I think the big picture is important. And here, here's, here's kind of the way I view it. If you understand the big picture of what's going on in a situation, and in this situation, the world, the existence, why everything is, then the smaller details will come into place. They will work themselves out. If I told you next Friday is the end of the world, you're going to figure out the best things to do between now and then. Cutting your grass might not be it. You're going to be able to figure out exactly what is a priority. So I think if we get a big picture, it's a huge blessing. And that's why I love this section as I started to study through this. Because in this section, I'll point out to you, God says, this is who you are. God says, this is who Jesus is. And in this section, God says, this is what I'm doing. And it doesn't change. And it's the same for us now as it was for Peter's first hearers. And it's the same now regardless of what country you live in or what time you live in. He gives us this clear picture. And this is, uh, this is really good. Uh, because as you grasp the reality and life throws its trials and different situations at you, you're going to be steady. You're not going to be tossed to and fro. Um, I like what Peter says, and and if you have your scriptures open, you can turn there, but chapter 4, verse 19, after talking about the suffering section, he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to the faithful creator. As you come to a knowledge, a real understanding and belief in who you are, who Jesus is, and what God is doing, it will enable you more and more to be able to entrust yourself to God, regardless of what you're going through and what you face. And so that's what this passage and God is, is, is revealing to us. The outline for this sermon is three parts. Number one, God tells us what God is doing. Number two, God tells us how they treated Jesus, and what we, as followers of Jesus, can learn and expect from that. And number three, God tells us how God builds his church. How God builds his church. So beginning with the first one, what is God doing? Look at verse four and five. It says, as you come to him, a living stone... Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves are like living stones. You're being built up as a spiritual house. Right here, he, 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 he gives this imagery of this building, of these stones. Jesus is referred to as a living stone. We are referred to as living stones. And verse 5 shows God's activity, like a, a gardener in the garden or a construction worker on the site. God is building them up. It even tells us what he's building them up, what he has on his wall as the final blueprint. It's a spiritual house, he says. The terminology for this building, for this materials, for this house is in verses 6 through 8 as well, and we'll look into that later. We'll see later on that this idea that God is building men and women and children and all believers throughout history into this house is is also in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. So this idea that Peter puts before us of, I know whatever situation you're in, I know you're suffering, but just 
sit with me for a minute. Let me explain some things. Think of a house. Think of a temple. Think of a building. Now, for us, that's not going to apply the same way as it would for them. So we need to go back just for a second to their context and their understanding. Because the, the way we do build things is very different. The people back then could have never imagined and dreamed of the sizes of the buildings that we have now. I live in San Diego. And so, I mean, skyscrapers and these cranes up to 30, 40, 50, 60 floors. Immense. But in a way... It's minuscule. It still doesn't capture what they would have understand. There's this idea that we think that we now in the year 2000 are smarter than the people in 1900 and way smarter than the people in the first century and the dark ages and before. But take a trip to Europe. Go to maybe Rome or Italy and, and view these buildings that they created. It will absolutely humble you. They didn't have the tools that we had. They didn't have the mechanics that we had. The, 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 the size of it, the magnificence, the beauty of it. During their time, uh, they had uh, the, the temple. And this is really the imagery that Peter is thinking about and what his hearers would have been thinking about. Even if they had never seen the, the Jewish temple. They would have been thinking about the temple and, and these huge stones. It's, it's said that in Today's uh, terms, it would be like a nine-story building. That high, the walls were 16 feet thick. You can actually go right now, get on a plane and go there and see some of the walls still standing. And they just swallow you up. And there's only, that's only just a, a, a little small portion of what once was. These buildings back then, if, the, if we had had phones, people would be taking selfies in front of them because... Because of the magnificence of them. That it meant something to stand in front of these huge buildings. The same with the pyramids. And this is what Peter is talking about. God is building something like that. Something that magnificent. And he tells them, you're part of that. You might feel small. Distant from God. But you're part of this. Jesus is part of this. It's something so big. And get this, that is what God is doing right now. He was writing that to the first century uh, believers. He's, he's writing that to you and me right now. God right now is building. He's the perfect architect. He never gets tired. He's not taking a day off tomorrow because it's a holiday. He's perfect in his, in his uh, ability. We watch these uh, renovation shows, right? All of, I say we as in all of us. I mean, society is just captivated by these things. And one of the shows is that they have this guy go in to houses that have been renovated, and whoever the contractor was just messed things up, did a shoddy work. It wasn't good work. Well, Jesus, God, God himself, through Jesus, does magnificent work. Every stone is perfect. Every angle is true. It's glorious in all that it do he does. And so God is building that right now. And as I sat here and I, I was wrestling with this, and this question just personally, what is going on? It was very clear what God is doing. And I, I wrote this down. It says, you are being built up as a spiritual house. And when it says you, it's talking about me and my children and my wife 
and the elders that I know here and you saints that I know here and every other person I've ever met in Christ Jesus, you are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus. This is reality, Jeremiah. I'm sitting at, uh, where we live. Uh, we are right across from the entrance of a, a Navy base. And thousands and thousands of sailors go on the base and off the base all day long. And then you, we, there's a bike path right by us. And so I sit there and I'm studying. And I'm doing this work. And I'm thinking, God, what are you doing? And there's just activity. The same way that right now thousands and thousands of cars are driving past on I-15. There's just buzzing everywhere. What is all this? I can't make sense of all those different moving pieces, but I do know the big picture. God right now is building a spiritual house. A house of worship that offers spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus. See, we have a lot going on in our society. We have elections. We have uh, technology advancements. We have economic issues. We got fun things going on. There's sports there's weddings, there's babies being born. We have sad things going on. Sickness, death, kids graduating and leaving the house. But in all these things, all these things, every car going down the highway, every sailor entering that base fits in and serves the purpose of God's building. All these things, there's, there's, when you start to get this picture, nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted. God uses everything. And therefore, also an implication of that is I better not waste anything either. Your car, your job, your relationship status, your height, your skills, your lack of skills, your finances, your church, these all are part of God's plan, and they won't fall and fit into his plan. God doesn't just have a plan here and doesn't know what's going on. He's not just developing this area and has no clue what's going on around. God controls it all. He's taking all of human history throughout all the time and all the gifts and all the people and all the circumstances, and he is shaping and building himself a spiritual house. We see this, as I said earlier, that this is not a New Testament idea. Look at the uh, Old Testament. Those three passages in 6 through 8 come from the Old Testament. God says, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone. This is Isaiah, 700 years before Christ came. And God says, I'm building. You never drive by a house or by a, a new uh shopping plaza and, and, and notice that that was there and say, oh, I wonder how that got there. It doesn't build itself. There's somebody building it. God is building it. God laid the stone. I am laying in Zion a stone. Isaiah 28, 16 says, I am laying in Zion a cornerstone. That is Christ. 1 Corinthians three sixteen says to the believers, you are God's temple. Ephesians two nineteen. listen to this. Ephesians 2.19 says, So then, you, and, and, and saints, I want you to take this personally. You are a brick in the wall, but in the wall of the magnificent temple of God. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 
You are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together in a dwelling place for God by his spirit. It's not mortar. It's not bricks. It's not wood. It's flesh and bone and spirit and soul. He is making all of us. He goes on in 2 Corinthians 6.16, 6, and, and this is uh, Paul explaining how real this is. We, how serious you better take this. You and I better take this. You know, I, I, I'm a small business owner, and I have material. I have product that I sell. And my kids, my product happens to be chips and drinks and sodas and uh, hot dogs and such. My kids will go in there, and they'll take it. They'll take the ice cream bars and stuff. I said, that's my product. I need that. Well, you are God's product. Don't misuse it. Don't mistreat it. And P, Paul is talking to the church in Corinthians, and he's saying, listen, you are part of God's holy temple. Don't, cho- don't join the righteous with the unrighteous. Don't be unequally yoked, he says. What does God's temple have to do with the temple of idols? This is how serious he takes it. He talks about in relationships and marriage. He says, don't you dare. You have been set apart. You've been redeemed and bought by the blood of Christ. He's bought you as a building block. This is how serious it is. You are the temple of God. So I hope that just through these few scripture passages and realities, we're starting to get a picture, at least a a little, maybe a purpose of what you are and why you exist. The challenge is that this is not visible, right? This is, we see building up new communities, and we can see it visible. We see it happening. And it's hard to grasp. And, and here's something that's also a huge struggle for us as Americans. We have such this individualistic mindset. To be the individual is to be right. That's what's, that's what's important. That's what's special. That's so trash and foreign to God's understanding. We are so hungry as Americans to be separate. There's this YouTuber that this lady licked the toilet on an airplane. Who would do that? And she filmed it because she wants to stand out. In what ways do we want to not be like everybody? We want to stand out. And yet, you need to be as concerned and care for and pray for the life and the health and the well-being of every other believer as your own. Not just in your family. But sitting across the pews, not just here, but at other churches. I'm so blessed that when I went up to uh, Seattle, which is known as somewhat a dark place, I found a PCA church, and I went to it, and they had Sunday school early, so I went to Sunday school. And this guy up there rocked it. And I talked to him afterwards, the Sunday school teacher. He's, He's not seminary trained, but he seeped in the scriptures, and he blew me away. God's word unites and binds us together in incredible ways and you can go to Africa and find that and you can go to Iceland to find that God's word travels across cultures and contexts and so I know it's difficult to see it in person especially even in a church because people join the church people leave the church you might only see one another one for an hour and a half on Sunday once a week so it's hard to understand that, that you are actually united to the believer next to you. You are united to the believer next to you more than you are united to the unbelieving person in your family. 
Jesus even said, who are my father and my mother and my brothers, but those who do the will of my father. The the, the title of this sermon was before I really even got too much studying, but I think I titled it something more than the eye, more than meets the eye. And that's because there's a reality that is invisible, but it's more real than what we see. You might feel very uh, disconnected from others here, but God is making you a building with one another that crosses generations. You're the same house, the same temple as Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. In heaven, we will be part and parcel with one another. The bond is strong between believers. Even just this morning, sitting at my desk going over the sermon, I got a text from a guy who I pastored about six years ago. And I mean, I haven't talked to him. I think he, every Father's Day sends me a text. But my heart just lit up. You can't see the mortar between the bricks of this spiritual house because it's spiritual. It's invisible. You can't see the mortar. But that bond between me and this gentleman is strong. Is strong, and the bond between you and the other saints is strong. And challenges can make maybe make that either even stronger. So, here's just a little side note: when the church has these opportunities to have a potluck, to have a, a lesson, to have a get together, when somebody invites you over, you do it, do it because building up that that relationship is important, and there's more value than you might think in that. So this is the, 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 the image that we just, is here that God is building. Four quick details that we need to understand about this. First, we should not be a part of this building. You and I, we are not worthy bricks. We are so disformed. We are not solid and strong. We would break under any kind of pressure. We are lopsided. We don't fit. And that is an idea that we are sinners. We are absolute sinners. We do not deserve to be part of this something so special. There's nothing righteous about us. You're talking about God of God, and he's saying, you are going to be my dwelling place. But we are part of this through Christ Jesus. Even it even says, uh, we're going to offer spiritual sacrifice accepted to God through Jesus Christ. Everything has to go through Jesus Everything has to go through Jesus because we are not treasures. We are trash. I have a brother who uh, loves to walk around and find treasures. Like he goes through people's like uh, junkyards and, and everything. We'll just be walking down the street. He's always got an eye for a treasure. It could be like a broken off mirror of a car. And he's like, treasure. And I'm thinking, it's just trash. And in reality, that's what we are apart from Christ. But Christ comes in. He lays a new foundation. He rips it out. He starts from scratch. He builds us up. He makes us presentable. Not even on our own. We can't even fix us up. He doesn't just give us direction. He actually does it all. It's him. So we should not be part of this. And therefore, we should be like, wow, I'm caught up in this. I'm caught up in what God is doing. So that's the first thing we need to understand is our sin should exclude us from being part of this. But God has sent his son Jesus to redeem us and to be a part of this. Number two, Jesus is the foundation. Verse six says, I've laid a cornerstone. Cornerstone was the central stone in the building. It was by which everything else was measured by. 
If it didn't match up, if it didn't match up to the cornerstone, it was tossed. Everything had to be founded on it. Christ is the cornerstone. And get this, he's not just the cornerstone, he's the living stone. Stones don't live, saints. Stones aren't alive. There's a couple different imageries coming in here. What he's saying is, you and I are not committing ourselves to just a principle or an idea in the world. We're committing ourselves to Christ who is alive who sits at the right hand of God, who sees over all that is taking place right now. And he's instituted the preaching of his word. He sent his spirit into the world. And he's going to come again. I had this dream before I was going to seminary. Should I go to seminary? I had an opportunity to uh, go be a part of a church and just right off the bat. And I was really struggling. Do I take three years, all the financial struggle to go to seminary or just, just go? And I had this dream and I'd say it's influenced by God. It was blessed by God, and it wasn't the only thing, but I think God used it uh, to kind of encourage me to go to seminary. Dream, I was wearing a hard hat. I walk into this building like the size of Costco, huge empty place, and they're building it. And a bunch of uh, guys are all around engineers, and they're like, all right, we got to start laying uh, the pipes and bringing in the flooring in here. Um, And I looked, and the floor was, the cement was like waving. It was like, it was dipping, and it wasn't wasn't solid. It was all over the place. I'm like, guys, you can't start building now. We got to get, the foundation is not set. It's not even dry yet, and even when it dries, it's not going to be square. You you can't start now. And like I said, it, it was just, Part of, uh, part of the way that Lord led me to say, hey, you need, if you're going to be ministering of Christ, you have to have a firm foundation, which is the word of God. Well, the foundation of the word of God is Christ Jesus. None of this exists. This whole temple doesn't exist without Christ Jesus. That's why I'm not afraid. I see a lot of Christians get concerned about false churches, false teaching, all these different ideas. If they don't have Christ as the foundation, the building will fall at some point. Just give it time. So Christ is the foundation. Number three, we are built to be a, uh, offer spiritual sacrifices. He changes up the metaphor, and he says also that um, he says also that we are royal priests. Think about the temple in the Old Testament. You not only had this huge building, but it had tons of liveliness and moving around, and these priests offering sacrifices. Blessing, burning incense, lighting fires, doing washings. They were active and they were offering sacrifices. Well, that is what we are saved to do. He's building us up to offer sacrifices. But these are sacrifices, not the sacrifices of blood or or bowls, but of obedience and of praise. Look at this in um, verse 9. It says, you are a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, God is building you into this temple, but the temple, you are part of it now, and we need to be active in this world. The whole idea of obedience and and that God has saved us to obedience can be a little scary sometimes to talk. I'm not talking about justification. You've already been redeemed and brought into the house But now in the house, he saved us unto obedience, to live a life pleasing to God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, he chose us in sanctification of the Spirit. The Spirit is sanctifying us for obedience to Jesus Christ. He wants us to be active in the blessing in the house that we've been given. Romans starts with, hey, 
I, I've been given the gospel message to bring about the obedience of the saints. And Paul ends Romans in chapter 16. I'm preaching this word to bring about the obedience of the saints. He's transforming us into a royal priesthood. So we have that we should not be here. Jesus is the foundation. This temple exists to offer spiritual sacrifices. I already talked about the corporate. Uh, this is what God is doing. He's building this house. Look at Revelation 21.2. John looks at the end of times. He says, I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And is this a real building? No, he's saying prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. He's talking about the saints prepared. Quickly moving on to the second point. What is God doing? He's, he's building. Secondly, th- how did they treat Jesus and what should we expect? Well, they rejected him. A living stone rejected. There's really, uh, this is actually really beautiful for Peter the Dew. Because these saints were really suffering. Chapter 3, um, oh, I can't, chapter 4, it says this. This is what's going on with the Christians during that time. It says, For the time has passed, which suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Chapter 4, verse 3. Living in sensuality, passion, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. What was happening is these believers were being converted. They had been being saved. And they used to walk according to the way of the whole world. But then they stopped. And they did participate in the parties and the drinking and the sexual improscuity. And then people made fun of them. They ridiculed them. And we know from other texts, they, they, they were ran out of their houses. They were uh, taken advantage of. And, he's, and he goes on to say that, listen, during those times when you're suffering, you might ask, really, God, what is going on? Where are you? And he says, this is not strange because even Jesus himself was rejected. Even Jesus himself was ridiculed and ostracized and stoned and even killed. So, what should we expect? Jesus even said that in this life, we are also going to suffer. He says, if they rejected me, they too will reject you. John 15, 8 says, if they persecute me, they will persecute you. Right here in chapter 4, he says, do not be surprised, my love, by the fiery trials when it comes upon you as if something strange was happening. God is building this temple, but he's building it in a very hostile environment, and challenges will come. So we just need to know that that is happening. The final uh, section, moving on quickly, is how is God building his church? How is God building his church? He explains in verse 6 through 8. After he explained that he's building a spiritual house and that we are being built to offer sacrifices, he says this at verse 6. For it stands in Scripture. That should really be interpreted, you can interpret that as, this is what Scripture has been teaching since the beginning. And what has Scripture been teaching from the beginning? It's been teaching that God lays a stone in Zion, a cornerstone, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. means if you have put your faith in Christ, 
you can stand firm and not fearing that you are going to lose. That God has you. That you are on the right side of God. That you will not be shaken or destroyed. This is, the, this is how God builds his church. It's through the word of God. The word of God goes out and we either receive and believe or we reject. That's how God builds his church. He's not building it through politics. He's not building it through power and might. He's not building it by entertaining and bringing people uh, in, into a very loose relationship with God. He's building it by his word. When he says, I've laid in Zion a stone, a stumbling, and a stone, a cornerstone, if you believe in him, you'll be blessed. But the builders rejected them, and they will stumble. That stumbling is judgment. Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says this. He says, whoever hears my words and obeys them will be like a man who built his house upon the rock. And when the winds came and the, uh, the waves rose and beat against the house, it did not fall because it was built upon the rock. But Jesus says, whoever hears my word and does not believe in them is like a man who builds his house upon the sand. And the waves came and beat upon the house and the wind blew and the house fell. It is by our response to the word of God that he builds the house. The good news is preached to you that there is salvation for you, an entrance into heaven, forgiveness of your sins, and, and Jesus, that's it. The good news is that you have God himself through the Son, if you believe. And then you are part of this temple. But if you reject that, if you reject his word, you will stumble Christ is offensive to people. That's why it says it's a rock of offense. It's a rock. Christ and the gospel message is offensive to people because it exposes their sin. It says you are wrong. It says, but there is one who is right. Repent and turn to that. It's also offensive to the the self-righteous because it says, no, you can't do it. And they say, yes, we can. And the gospel says, no, you're not good enough. You need a savior. You need an outside source. And they say, no, we don't. And so they stumble. They stumble. God is building his church. It, it, it's a slow process. It's invisible. It doesn't always make sense to us, especially when the suffering comes in. But this is not opposed to God's actions and what God is doing. This is all part of what God is doing. I love this quote that I, that I saw, and I'll end with this. It's, it's a quote, uh, Calvin, John Calvin, this older theologian, quoted it, but he didn't say who it was from. But it says this, Knowing the reality of the world that we live in, knowing what God is doing, knowing that suffering is it's going to happen, you can't hide yourself from it, but knowing that Christ is going to return, he says this, be not moved in your minds. Be not moved in your minds, but quietly entertain your desires. Quietly entertain your desires. This is old English. The word entertain there means um, stall them. Don't, don't, keep, keep them under control. Let's say you have a group of teenagers come over to your house and they just enter into the, the, the parlor and you're, you're, you're going to... You, you, and 
they want to come into the house, you might say to your teenage son or teenage daughter, hey, just entertain them for a bit until I get things ready. It's saying to your desires, our desires for the things of this world, our desires for sin, entertain it, stall it, stop it, contain it, don't let it out. So listen, be not moved in your mind. Be assured of what God is doing. Don't give room for your evil desires and check your feelings. <laughs> These old theologians, they didn't mess around. They weren't politically correct. They said, I know you have feelings, check them. Don't listen to your feelings. And he says, until the Lord will be pleased to fulfill his promise. Saints, I know it's hard to live in this world. I know it doesn't always make sense. I know you can't see the hand of God. I know it feels like you're alone. We are in the exact same spot as Peter's first century hearers. But Peter says, it's okay. God's working. Quiet your mind. Control your desires. Don't follow your feelings. And hold out till God returns. Because he's coming. And when he comes, oh, it's going to be a party. Please pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that sheds light on the reality of our everyday lives. Even today, we will go home to our house, in our car. We'll eat the lunch. We'll make the plans. We face a week like many other weeks. We have the trials that we had when we came in here this morning. And we still don't see you. But what we do see is spiritually, with the eyes of our faith, that you are real. That you have not forsaken us. That you are doing something magnificent through your son, Jesus Christ, who you sent. And you said in your word that if you have given us your son, Jesus Christ, how will you not give us all other things? So sustain your people, Lord. Build us up into the salvation that Christ has earned for us. Sanctify us. Help us to offer spiritual sacrifices. Show us how to do that, of, of words of praise, of acts of kindness, of, of mercy towards others, that we might be united to our brothers and sisters in this body and other bodies around the world. May we glorify you and entrust ourselves to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.